0: Welcome to the Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with the Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room, using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers who will share evidence-based practices real-world strategies and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what our guest today on the resilient surgeon is monica parker and the topic is wonder and you may be wondering what i'm talking about well cardiothoracic surgeons already live demanding and often all-consuming lives, just given the level of commitment and dedication necessary to serve our patients and our specialty. When you add in the wave of continuous change to keep up with, the relentless information overload, and the tsunami of distractions flooding us from the modern internet world, well, it's a recipe for living a life like a Formula One race car on a racetrack. Racing to get to the finish line which ultimately, of course, is death. The race can be fun and provide a lot of meaning, but a potential unintended consequence is that life and all of its wonder can get lost in the fray. Some of those blurry unintended consequences include our relationships with others as they risk becoming more transactional and our relationship with ourselves as we unconsciously slip into the belief that we are machines with endless capacity. But the speed of life can also blur our relationship to the many other extraordinary wonders of life, both big and small. Like anything, what you focus on grows. And to appreciate the many wonders of this life of ours, we must be intentional to make time to see them and actually look for them. For when we do, we can reconnect with the profound beauty of our world and our universe. And with the amazing fact that we are even here on this planet at all for this brief but wonderful opportunity to experience our consciousness, our humanity, and our world. Wonders can be anything that makes you feel small, things that help you realize the fragility and miracle of our existence, including the astounding privilege of seeing inside the chest of our patients and the miracle of our bodies. The wonder exists everywhere. Personally, I find enormous wonder on my walk with my dog every night, especially in the winter, when the dark and silence fills my soul with a reverence for the awesome complexity of our universe. All it takes is a few moments of me looking at the moon on a clear night to shift my brain from its relentless focus on me, my past, and my future to something more magnificent outside of myself. Wonder in its power to transform our relationship with life is, like all things, a process and a practice we can cultivate. And our guest today, Monica Parker, is here to help us guide us on our wonder journey. Monica is a world-renowned speaker, writer, and authority on the future of work, having spent decades helping people discover how to lead and live wonderfully, in part through her company Hatch, a global human analytics and change consultancy firm that challenges corporate systems to advocate for more meaningful work lives that includes clients like LinkedIn, Google, Prudential, and Lego. Now Monica has also been an opera singer, a museum exhibition designer, a policy director, a Chamber of Commerce CEO, and get this, a homicide investor investigator defending death row inmates. Monica is the author of the book, Wonder, the extraordinary emotion that will change the way you live, learn, and lead. And it is an incredible work that is based on both science and spirituality and the merging of the two in other words our heads and our hearts and in it she shows us the key ingredients to develop our wonder muscles openness curiosity absorption and awe and how the practice of wonder and it is a practice can add so much to our lives and to our well-being and now i bring you monica parker monica welcome to the resilient surgeon it's it's an honor and a delight to have you here
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, you've, in looking at your uh, your past and what you've done in life, you've had an incredibly eclectic uh, path in, in life and your career and that. And I'd love for you, if you could stitch together briefly the the, the multiple steps in the fortuitous chain of events that led you to wonder about wonder, if you would, and and how it all came to be.
1: Sure. So, um, I am American, but I live in Europe now, and um, I studied design in undergrad in in Florida and then went on to get my master's degree looking at organizational behavior um, in Belfast, and that was how I moved uh, to Europe. But I did take a bit of a dog-legged journey, and I was a homicide investigator for the Department of Justice, and I worked with men and women on Florida's death row um, with the defense teams to exonerate them. And... I think that was probably where the seed of wonder was planted. I didn't have the language for it, but... What I realized throughout my, in my history is that I have been helping people through big change, existential change. So mm-hmm. obviously people about to be executed by the state, that's a big change. I worked with um, children and their families with disabilities, um, You know, even mer- mergers and acquisitions when people um, lose their job, again, existential change. And what I realized is that it's people who hold their world and a great deal of wonder who are more resilient and so I started sort of exploring that going all the way back to my time as a, a homicide investigator and just um, pulling out my understanding of this emotional experience and how it can impact us
0: what are the what are some of the signals you receive from individuals that brought your awareness? temperature up about wonder, you know, as you were going on, because it, it sounds like it was kind of an incremental awareness in working with people or or was it something it, different?
1: I think it, uh, I, I, it's been my history in change management. So I think just helping, um, trying to understand how some people simply are just better able to deal with what life throws at them and seemingly on the face, they should be equal. And yet some people just are better able to manage mm-hmm. it. And for a while, I think I thought it was something that was maybe a skill. Um, And to some degree, it can be a skill. We can learn to be more wonder prone. But as I started to explore it, I probably started a bit with curiosity um, and then understanding um, how curiosity could impact that. And of course, curiosity being the verb to wonder. So I think it's been... um, my exploration, and I, you know, I work in social science. I do applied social science for my business, and um, just sort of like a, I'm like a little magpie. I'm just picking little shiny knowledge bits and putting them together, and then one day yeah, I look yeah. like, oh, I have a nice little nest here. So
0: yeah, you, you certainly do have a nice little nest. I you know I I refer to, you know, I think about books in kind of multiple categories, and one of them uh, is you know they add value and you learn something new. And then there are books that are what I call paradigm shifters or they open you up to a whole new world and and I and I'm, I am complimenting you but your book wonder is a paradigm shifter. Wow, uh, really, thank you for that. It, it brings so much focus and science and soul to the whole world of wonder. So I I want to be sure to pitch your book heavily. Here. <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. Now, I wonder, before, before we get into the wonder cycle, just to oh. set up the conversation a little bit, what is wonder in a general sense, and, oh. and how do you define wonder? and I know you talk about it being a verb and a noun, so
1: yeah. Yeah, exactly, so um, when I first, I I looked at it just linguistically even, that um, we have the verb to wonder, which is um, what we might associate with curiosity, and then we have a noun, a wonder, um, that might be the catalyst for awe, and so my goal was Mm -hmm. to link these two concepts, um, and in fact, they are quite linkable, Um, so what I found is that uh really all of this uh, both the two wonder and being inspired by a I, I wonder starts with openness to experience which is one of our big five personality traits um that tends to lead us then into curiosity and the type of curiosity that i'm talking about um, is not like a google search to settle a bet or smelling the milk to know if it's gone off that's the kind of curiosity we share with animals this is the kind of curiosity that is exploration for the joy of exploration. What some people call epistemic curiosity, and that's a wholly human type of um, exploration. Well, survival
0: then, curiosity versus epistemic
1: correct uh, knowledge yes.
0: curiosity for the joy yeah.
1: of it, for the for the for the experience of the mental expansion, right. um, and then moving from that into absorption, which is where we really it's a presence of of. Uh, a purity of presence, I guess, a presence of focus and paring back the noise that exists in our life. Um, and then we may be rewarded after that with um, an opportunity to experience awe. But one of the reasons that I didn't focus the book just on the component of awe, for starters, I truly believe it sits as a subset of wonder. But also I wanted people to see that it's very approachable, that there's an on-ramp to sort of the big bang of awe and that It is a cycle because every time we experience one of these components, we're more likely to experience it in the future. And I wanted people to know that there was benefit in and of itself to explore openness, to experience, to explore um, curiosity, epistemic curiosity, to explore absorption and not just feel compelled to seek out that thing that gives them a sense of
0: awe. We don't need to go to the Grand Canyon constantly. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes, so yeah, yeah. I think it, it certainly we can, um, and that will give us a that will be an undeniable moment of wonder. But my goal with the book was that people would be able to find wonder in the quotidian, right? That mm-hmm. we would be able mm-hmm. to find it in the the little ways that exist in our life, and that's one of the reasons why I felt curiosity was so important to include in um, the wonder cycle, because we naturally believe, obviously erroneously, that there is less to be curious about as we age. Um, and so keeping that curiosity muscle, um, you know, very well honed and, uh, and focusing on the, the knowledge that there is so much more than what we see in our day to day life, that we sort of just speed through, um, our existence. And that if we just slow down and allow ourselves to be present, that there is so much more that we can be seeing, experiencing, and feeling a sense of wonder about.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know that brings me to a thought about um, let's just pick the 1400s, all right? And imagining what it was like then. So we didn't have all this knowledge about the science and everything else. And and I know from reading, you know, literature and and what we know about those eras that you know people saw things in woods, they heard things, you know, superstition, a religious experience, you know, the the soul, as you talk about in the book, mm. and. And, you know, I, I, it's a guess because I'm not there, but I have a suspicion that there was a, a richer sense of that back then. And this is what I'm asking now. My hypothesis is that, you know, our level of scientific knowledge, the pace of life, all that, you switch from that time to this. And it's kind of getting drowned out. Our wonder mm. is, is that a, a reasonable I way? Think of at I think it is. I think
1: it's yeah. I think it's getting drowned out. I think we are um, overexposed and overstimulated. I think we are a very stressed um, world. I mean, some of the statistics in America: one in four women is on um, antidepressants. Ninety percent mm-hmm. of doctors' visits are for some stress-related ailment. Um, So obviously there is a need for this. The challenge is when we're stressed, um, when we're not functioning at, um, I guess, the the maximum that we can be, our brains like really quick neural pathways. And so it's going to try to get from A to B as quickly as possible. And it's not going to make the opportunity for wonder. And so I think part of it is that we are just so rushed in our life. But I also think sci- I believe science can be a window to wonder, but some people will use it as a mechanism to explain wonder away. And so that's I what think- I meant.
0: That's what yeah. I meant. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So yeah. I think it's the lens through which you view it. So I spoke to some scientists who are very dry, um, who said, you know, when I would try to get philosophical with them, they would just say, I, I, I don't even understand the question. Others would say. <laughs> I am. I understand exactly. That's not a question science can answer yet, but this is my opinion. So there were people that really saw the duality of it. Yeah. And yeah. I think, yes, I think science sometimes is is killing that in us. Um, but also we we're a little bit. Um, I think in the Western world, obsessed with positivity, um, we are happy chondriacs, everything has to be positive. And what we have definitely lost through the years is that sense of fear and trembling. So you mentioned like you'd hear, you know, spirits in the forest. There mm-hmm. was a fear mm-hmm. about that. And then mm-hmm. when you would realize you were safe, that 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 evolution from oh I'm afraid to now I'm safe, that's that's a little wonder bringer in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. We have now sort of killed the, the fear and trembling in the Western world, in um in individual individualistic societies, in collectivist societies like. Um, in South America or in Asia, they do still, even in the language, have a, a, that tinge of fear um, to their experience of wonder. And I think that losing that tinge of fear is to our detriment. I think it's part yeah. of the power of, of, of wonder.
0: Yeah. And it's the pace and the drowning and and, and also, um, I, you know, there's no the time. You need time, right? to to wonder. I mean, it's, you need mental white space to allow Mm. it to happen. Is it accurate? Yeah,
1: absolutely. It's what I call slow thought. So it's really about slowing down the chattering brain that we all have. Um, It's that, you know, voice in the back of our head that says you need to be doing more of this or reflecting on something you did that was stupid 10 years ago, all of those sorts of things we need to try to create a degree of attentional control. So that can be through things like uh, meditation. Another reason why meditation is great. It can be through prayer or a gratitude practice, um, narrative journaling, really anything that allows you to be present in that moment. And that slow thought, that's where you're starting to not just slow down sort of the pace of your life, but telling your brain to really observe and not be in a hurry to rush to judgment, to decide what it is that you're seeing, to really look at it with new eyes. And you're right. We can't do that when we are rushed, when we're stressed, um, and we do need to slow down in order to see those more nuanced elements of
0: wonder. You know, I, I love your glasses and it, it <laughs> makes me think of uh, the idea that to, to wonder, and you're going to, we'll talk a little bit about this in the future, but you know, certain people based on their personality have a significant tendency to be like that yeah. trait wise. Yes. Uh, but we all need, but the forces of our world can get the get us to not put the glasses on, and we all need to be intentional about putting the glasses on to reap its benefits. Is is that it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So
1: I think that it's really helpful. So uh, the way that I describe wonder, of course, is a series of states and traits. So if we look at openness to experience, that is a personality trait, one of the big five. By the time we're about 25, it's pretty well set, half based on our genetics and half based on our experience. Um, It's not to say that you can't change your personality, but It is not something that if you want to focus all your energy on that, it's probably not energy well spent. It can certainly evolve over time. But what's helpful about knowing your degree of openness to experience is that you can then find sort of mitigators and supporters that will help... Uh, I guess accentuate whatever it is that you have naturally curiosity is a state and a trait so it's we do have a tendency to have a certain amount of trait curiosity, but it can be dialed up in the state in the environment. Absorption, again, is a combo of state and trait, and they believe that awe may be as well. And so some of it is we bring to the party, um, mm-hmm. but then understanding how we can manipulate that in a positive way, both within our environment, but also then with the way that we engage with other elements of our thought process in order to support those pieces, perhaps, that are you know less wonder prone. And that's yeah. your yeah. Sort of putting on the glasses is saying, and a lot of that is just about priming. It's saying, priming, I will find yeah, something. Yeah. I mean, that's what a, a, I get us. What's a wonder walk? A wonder walk is you decide it is. That's it. You go on a walk and you say, I'm going to find things to feel a sense of wonder about. And they found um, in experiments, one group went on a regular walk, the wonder walkers went on one sentence prime you will find something to feel wonder about. And um, the wonder walkers came back and had benefits for the following week, whereas the regular walkers were ruminating, thinking about their life again, that chattering mind. So a lot of it is even just priming your brain saying, I want to find this. And when you do that with your brain, it says, OK, I'm going to I'm going to commit cognitive resources towards finding it. You told me to find it. I will. So a, a lot of this is just about telling ourselves we will it is there and we will find it.
0: The value of this, it seems to me, in many ways, is to take the focus off the self. <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm. um, you know, science has shown pretty clearly that the more we think about ourselves, the more unhappy we get. Uh, and so, it, and this brings me to the world of happiness. And I just wanted to highlight, if you or have you highlight, if you could, the notion of psychological richness mm. and and its and its power here in in this yeah. world versus happiness.
1: So Shigehiro Oishi, um, a scientist that developed the the idea of psychological richness. And what he says is that um, that happiness is it seems to be the indicator we think at the end of our life will be what has brought us the most satisfaction. But what they did is they looked at the um, uh, the obituaries of people, of, uh, did a meta-analysis of obituaries of people. And what they found was a combination of the things that people said that they were happy that they had achieved and then those things that they were sad they weren't able to. And those aggregated to be more about experiences, good and bad, um and they and he termed this psychological richness now the way that i look at it is one of the reasons why i mentioned before that it is so important to have that sort of fear and trembling aligned with the elation that's associated mm-hmm. with wonder is that it's a mixed emotion and mixed emotions are very good for us our brain likes mixed emotions so happiness by its nature is is singly valence it's always positive just like fear is always negative Mm -hmm. but an emotion like wonder can be dually valence and that gives our brain it, it makes it stretch it helps us start to allow competing ideas in our mind at the same time other ones are nostalgia Um, Susan Cain wrote Bittersweet, and that's basically about nostalgia and a mixed emotion. All itself is a mixed emotion. And so having that mixture is so much more positive than just seeking happiness. And the other Mm -hmm. challenge is we are just so bad as humanity knowing what makes us happy. It's Mm -hmm. a term, a psychological term called affective forecasting. And we generally think we will be happy after a certain benchmark or a certain item or a certain experience. And then we just go back to basically our happiness baseline, which is part of our our personality. Um, And so I want people to realize that happiness is not a steady state, nor should it be, despite what the self-help industry wants to tell us. And that we can't A normal person should not be looking at war on two continents and say, um, I'm happy about that, but you can be in wonder. You can always be in wonder, even in the darkest of times. And Mm -hmm. so I want people to see wonder and psychological richness as potential steady states, as opposed to happiness is, is fleeting. And no, I don't hate happiness. I've been accused of that. I don't hate. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, You know, that, kind of a segue here. And my experience, uh, I did a lot of cancer surgery as a thoracic surgeon. And, you know, this is going to be true of my colleagues who do cardiac surgery too, but, you know, it's a very, uh, I guess I would say psychologically rich environment, mm. you know, uh, the world of being a surgeon or a physician. And I used to, and I, and I use the word enjoy here uh, carefully. But I I did
1: found satisfaction from
0: I I found a great deal of satisfaction from uh, contending with really difficult things with patients. And, for example, if I couldn't remove a tumor uh, and that meant that's it, there's nothing more to do or, you know, having to tell families bad news, uh, you know, these sorts of things i found a great deal of satisfaction about having to navigate that and it it brings up also the fact that the what you talked about and that is the mixed emotions mm. uh because it was such a, a a turbulent series of emotions you know i mean uh, my own the patients the families but i just found it 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 it, it so totally took me away from myself mm. and put it it just allowed me to see the scope of humanity our our humanness and 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 it brought me to that place of wonder mm-hmm. but i didn't have the words for it back then but i just knew that there was something kind of magical about it mm-hmm. at the and time i've heard so. that
1: from uh, there are doctors who have been um and and ministers as well who are in the room when people pass away and they say that mm-hmm. there's almost a a tangible sense in that space that's happening. And what you're describing is what um, scientists call small self. And it occurs when we feel like a small part of a bigger system. And that's really what we're seeking from a wonder point of view is to connect with that knowledge that we are just one little moat in a a whole universe. Minuscule moat, yes. 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 And that to to appreciate that when we do that, it makes us feel small. It makes our problems feel small. And then it makes us very pro-social, which is that it means we want to step forward into the world, that we want to participate that we want to um, contribute, be more humble, be more um, grateful, to Mm -hmm. have better relationships that are stronger and based on authenticity, um, more empathy. So all of these, you know, and you can take it two ways. I think some people may, might've had that experience, and it gave them a God complex. Right. So I think that some yeah. of that might be also how you experience it, <laughs> because I mentioned to you that my father is a surgeon, and I do think there's, to some degree, a little bit of a typology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think some of that is how, what lens you choose to see through. Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that also reminds me, I remember in my first days of training in thoracic surgery, doing a, a thoracotomy, Uh, opening the chest, you know, and I, I had a film camera at the time and I was so stunned at the wonderful anatomy of the pulmonary artery and the veins. And, you know, the fact that I was even able to see this, I mean, I was taking pictures, I was just blown away. But then you fast forward 20 years and you talk about habituation. Mm. Uh, and, you know, and I'm no longer seeing the magic in what I'm doing, you know, and, yeah. and it's the same for heart surgeons, you know, every, you know, they open the chest and there's the beating heart, you know, mm. and I, I know that most of them in the beginning were like, my God, this is like beyond comprehension. Yeah. Cool, you know, yeah. Uh, but what about the habituation piece and, and keeping those getting those glasses on?
1: Yeah, so this is the challenge. Our brain notices newness. In fact, it's all it notices. So for the most part, we are an autopilot. And you can read about sort of the idea of the two parts of our brain in um, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, Mm -hmm. he talks about this. And there's a reason for that. Um, It's expedient. Um, Also, if we were to actually notice everything and there are people who do, you would go mad. It becomes Mm -hmm. a mental illness. It's too Mm -hmm. much because you can't filter. And so our brains are trying to just, yeah, get the job done as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible. And so there are times when we stop really seeing. So ways to remind yourself is to try to find the novelty in what you're doing, um, is to start to focus on small details that maybe you didn't notice before. But there's no question that our as we age certainly it's piaget talks about the schemas that build sort of our 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 brain map and over time the more experiences we have the more schema the harder it becomes for our brain to believe that there is something new there Mm -hmm. um but again we can practice that exercise another might even be Uh, being curious, so asking questions that you had never asked before, maybe even of yourself um, about how you felt or internalized or metabolized that experience. So perhaps it's not in the moment, but it's how you analyze it. Um, I spoke to a a woman who is a mountain climber, a very uh, accomplished mountain climber. did Everest and all the rest. And she said that while she was in the moment, she couldn't feel wonder because she had to be too focused. And I imagine that you mm-hmm. get that to some degree from yeah. surgery as well. Yeah. But it was afterwards. So before she would ask herself a series of questions and say, I wonder what this was like for people you know, a hundred years ago, I wonder what this was like for the first woman. And then she would come back and consider her experience. And that was when the wonder hit. And so maybe it's not happening in the moment, but perhaps there's ways that you can prime yourself to experience it afterwards.
0: That's interesting. So it even speaks to the practice of gratitude or other journaling mm. activities in the power to create that state of mind. Is that right?
1: Absolutely, and yeah. you mentioned sort of that moment of of um of wonder that you had speaking to these families, and some of that certainly is that mixed emotion of gratitude. This combination of I'm so I'm so fortunate, and they're not, and yeah, that tug right. of war in your mind um, is really powerful and positive for us.
0: Okay, I'd like to circle back a little bit, and I, what I you, you talk about the five elements of wonder, and you've got your own names for them. I, I think my surgical colleagues may probably identify more with the standard names.
1: Yes,
0: that's fair. <laughs> that's that's fair. fair. And uh and I actually would go so far, you know, there's Maslow's hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, I almost think there's now a Monica Parker hierarchy. All right? <laughs> there you go. So you like gotta label that and create that. And and I'm actually quite serious, uh, because and I think of these uh five um I don't know, practices, if you will, or whatever, Uh, you know, they're kind of the engines of this wonder Mm. cycle, which is your Mm. term, a wonder cycle. Mm. And I'd like it if you could just go into a little more detail about what openness means exactly, what curiosity, you know, the different Mm -hmm. types that you already alluded to, absorption. And then i love this expectation violation Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. and i'm going to work on using that with my dear wife leanne (laughs) and then also (laughs) the vastness and accommodation you know sure
1: so openness when we talk about openness to experience again one of our big five personality traits everybody has some degree of openness But when I'm talking about openness in this context, it's really about openness to ideas. So that's sort of the subset that if we can be open to ideas, then that primes our brain for um, for the future parts of the wonder cycle. And in particular, if we can hold two competing ideas in our brain at the same time, that really starts to prime us. It gives us the, the concept of nuance Um, What it also does is it is the antidote to polarization. So I do have an opinion that um, that schools today are teaching to rote memorization and to standardization. And in that kids are learning a single right answer. And I imagine in some degree you learn that in medical school as well. There's there's an answer. But the more that we teach kids that there's a single right answer, they become adults that believe everything has a single right answer. And so I believe that it's feeding a level of polarization and you it's very hard to be polarized when you're wonder prone because there is no black and white. You recognize that it's all gray. How do you pick a side when it's gray? And so it's really about having uh, these competing ideas held in your mind at the same time, paradoxical thinking, if you can achieve it. Then once you're. Monica,
0: is that kind of openness? And to ideas does that also include like openness to another's perspective? Then yes, is that, absolutely. In, in terms of ideas, yeah.
1: And that starts to get—that's where it links into curiosity. And so, some people say that that curiosity is almost is basically an outcome of openness to experience. That mm-hmm. um, it is that that natural um, evolution of being open to new ideas to then wanting to explore them. I mean, that's what the basis of our humanity is. So when we talk about um, curiosity, again, I said epistemic, there's so many different, people don't realize that there's so many different uh, models of curiosity, you know, half a dozen at least that are validated, but they tend to fall into two camps. There is a type of curiosity again, that I said, that's like a Google search and that's, I call that surface curiosity. And then mm-hmm. there's the curiosity and that is the exploration um, for the intent of it. But this is where you get into sort of the interesting bit that you said about the perspective, because at the end of the day, what is empathy but deep curiosity about the human experience mm-hmm. and so really that's what you start to find is that um this kind of curiosity is about your own experience about your inner world it's about the world in which you inhabit it is about other people's worlds and so it really that that element of deep curiosity becomes a an as you said an engine for so much of the pro social benefits of wonder because it's very hard to be judgmental if you're curious right you it's you're you're exploring rather than judging
0: you use the term there and i want people to really grasp this because i think it's so important curiosity as well i'll use the engine thing again an engine of pro-social activity or thinking can you just tell us what you mean sure sure.
1: so pro-social is any um any emotion or any activity that is in benefit of other people. So it is um, something that is not selfish. It is something that uh, that furthers relationships with other humans. And so mm-hmm. that's what we mean by pro-social. You know, friendliness, kindness, gra- um, uh, generosity. Those would all be sort of pro-social emotions. Empathy, again, pro-social. So anything yeah, that is sure. about strengthening the relationship and in and, um, and, and support of other humans. So then when you move from that deep curiosity, we will naturally hopefully fall down sort of a rabbit hole. And this could be the um, purity of focus you get from a flow state, potentially. Um, it could also be, again, that that sense of quietude that you get while meditating or during one of these slow thought practices. And it could just be really just being present and aware in your world. It's interesting because absorption's is sort of a strange beast. Um it was, it's started being researched, and the, the tool that um exists today called the intelligent absorption scale really mm. it's about um it, it, he was studying the propensity towards people to be um uh to be hypnotized so he was really trying to understand how could you draw people into that level of absorption and some people think absorption might actually be a type of hyper curiosity where you're so super curious about something that everything else falls away. Mm. And so it, it's a natural outcome. Again, just like openness is a natural outcome into um, into uh, curiosity, curiosity, curiosity yeah. naturally feeds into absorption. And then when we're deeply absorbed, we're in the process of seeing patterns that we expect to complete a certain way. That's what our brain does. I've seen this. I'm exploring. This is what I think will happen next. But if something occurs that is unexpected, now of course that can be a big unexpected, like maybe showing up and seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time, that's a big wow, seeing your child take their first steps, but it could be something as small as a new idea or um, you know a turn around a corner that you hadn't seen before. But what scientists call that is an expectation violation. And so the degree of that violation of your expectation is what, um, what determines the degree to which you will feel awe, and so that's the, the, really the degree that. to
0: which you wake up.
1: Correct. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Wake up. To which yeah. you see
1: it, and I I love to use the the um example that um uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. He you know one of the most accomplished architects, undeniably. And if you ever see any of his uh, uh you know constructions, his designs, he liked really tiny, tiny hallways. Um, that were quite uncomfortable. You almost felt like you had to dip your head or something. Um, But these dark, tiny hallways would open up into these huge cantilevered, light-filled rooms. And so without even knowing the science, he appreciated, he understood that, that that differential, that change would elicit eye blinking wonder in the viewer. And that's really what it is. It's saying to your brain, notice this. It's new, it's different, it's unexpected. And then you move from absorption into awe. And the reason I give two um, components to awe, the wow and the woe, is because there really are two phases of awe. So the first um, is where we experience something that, as you said, makes us feel small. So something so vast that we feel small. It can be physically vast. It can, you know, like a a mountain or a seafront. It can be emotionally vast, like again, our relationships, like death potentially. And it can be um, cognitively vast. So the The idea of a folded universe Mm -hmm. Um, and that starts to make us feel small now when we feel small our brain is trying to understand well what just happened and make sense of it and in that moment our brain is highly plastic and so what now happens is what's known as accommodation so this is where we've gone from the wow and there's actually a face that people make when they experience awe the eyes will open and uh Mm -hmm. breathe in And then afterwards, that's where you sort of exhale and go, whoa, that now you're starting to understand, trying to metabolize what's happened and your brain is accommodating that new information. So as opposed to assimilation, which is where we see something and it's similar enough that we can throw it into a box that already exists, accommodation means we need to build a new concept in order to understand it. And that's where our brain really becomes more plastic and more desirous of becoming open to new ideas because now we think, oh, I want more of that. And that's how it becomes a cycle because then you move from that moment of of awe and the accommodation that occurs back into openness. And each time it becomes sort of this upwardly positive, self-fulfilling cycle
0: an upward spiral upward positive hmm. spiral yeah it's really true and it, it you know you're what you just talked about there I just want to say again uh how uh, for my for our listeners how you have taken the science I mean this is not a book um that is uh just okay, here's what Monica Parker thinks and I'm based not on whim, whimsy <laughs> it's not squishy this is a serious science-based, Uh, book uh, that really, I think, and again, I mean, it magically connects the dots between the soul, if you will, and and the science. So I just wanted to make make sure I said that. I
1: appreciate that. Yeah, it does have 70 pages of bibliography. I like to joke (laughs) that it makes an excellent doorstop, Um, but I was very (laughs) touched because one of the people who endorsed the book um is a gentleman named scott barry kaufman and scott barry kaufman was just Mm -hmm. named um one of the top two percent uh scientists in the world um by stanford university and this uh, he invited me onto his podcast as well one of the few non-academics and so to have that kind of endorsement when i'm not an academic really heartening because um because I want people to know that there's real rigor, that there is uh, there's support to this idea. Yeah. It's not just something that's squishy and um, self-helpy, although it does help ourselves. Um, but there's really, you know, rigorous science behind it that people yes. can be com- confident with. Yeah.
0: And your book conveys that beautifully. Yeah. So what are some of the barriers to wonder? Of course, we talked about society, speed you know, uh, you know, a sense of certainty about what we know and that sort of thing. And you you've talked about age changing our mm-hmm. our wonder, you know, quotient, if you will. Uh, but also you you talk about something that I thought was really interesting, and that's uh need for cognition and yes. need for cognitive closure. Mm. I thought that was such a interesting demarcation because immediately I started thinking of people who are just so strongly in the camp of need for cognitive closure mm-hmm. and, and how I really rub. I don't mesh well with people like that. It's really a challenge for me. Yeah. So yeah, I'd like. To and that this.
1: is part of what then leads into polarization, of course, because mm-hmm. so um, Ari Lancy, he um, developed this idea. So the, uh, the idea of need for cognition is someone who enjoys exploring ideas, right? So it's someone who is happy with nuance is happy with, Um, with not knowing the answer and to continue to try to find it, sort of an intellectual journeyman. People who are high in need for cognitive closure um, want to come to a decision, come to an answer, and then stick with it because it's comfortable for them. Now, these aren't on the same continuum, but naturally people who are high in need for cognition are low in need for cognitive closure and vice versa. The challenge is some of the things that are very certain, totalitarianism, very certain. Um, uh, racism, sexism, very certain. So these a lot of these challenging attributes of of humanity um potentially are fed by this need to say, I know where everyone sits, I know the answers, I know where I sit, even if it means I'm in a pecking order that is, you know, below a lot of other people, I know. I know with certainty what is happening in the world. So, yes, it would be difficult, sort of, to have a communication with somebody who is high in need for cognitive closure against someone who's high in need for cognition. But the great thing is that those are both very changeable. So, while we can't change our openness to experience all that much, These two elements are incredibly powerful to the way that we perceive new thinking and new ideas, and they can be exercised. So we can work ourselves out of being someone who's high in need for cognitive closure and being somebody who is higher in need for cognition. But a lot of that is about um, coming comfortable with nuance and becoming comfortable with gray areas um, and not feeling the need to speed to a solution, but rather to sort of sit in the unknowing. And it's very interesting because some scientists are very high in that need for cognitive closure. Right, it does. has got I nothing think... to do
0: with intelligence or anything oh, else. No. It's, it's, yeah.
1: Absolutely not. Some of them were, they had to, and that was why, you know, some even- bristled against all of social science. So when I talk to some neuroscientists, they'd say, you know, well, we haven't figured that out yet. And I'd say, but no, you have it. You just don't know where in the brain it occurs, but for them, it didn't actually happen until they could pinpoint and say, this is where in the noggin it's happening. Um, But there were several (laughs) who even use that expression that I I'm, I'm willing to sit in the unknowing, especially when you start getting into psychedelics and how that, you know, operates within our mind, um, there has to be a lot of sitting in the unknowing. There's just things yeah. that we don't understand. um and and that's that, I think, is heartening, that we can work on that. And I hope that we start working on that with kids very young,
0: yeah, that brings me to the parenting point, But it reminds me of something I used to say, and I still do, that i I think of I, I like getting uncomfortable. I mean, I actually enjoy mm. getting uncomfortable. Uh, with new ideas, with anything, you know, just anything that pushes me out of my zone of sort of certainty, you know, about mm. things. And I've I've tried to inculcate that in my children and and it's it's worked to a large extent. But what about parenting? What, what can one do as a parent? And well, first of all, going back to need for cognitive closure, if you're a parent that has a lot of that, you got to work on yourself first, probably, Correct. right? Yeah. yeah. And you, you first got to be aware of the fact that you have mm. such a need and then you can do things to change that. But What are your thoughts around fostering wonder in our children?
1: So the first thing I would say is, um, and I was very fortunate to collaborate with an organization called Tinker Garden, which is owned by Highlights, you know, the magazine that you write. Oh yeah, sure. And the doctors, all the doctors will know the highlights. And um, we looked at even from very, very young, one of the ways when kids are very, very young is to help them learn based on nature. So nature is a constant wonder bringer. And if you can help teach children different elements of whatever it is that they're trying to learn via nature as sort of a a conduit of that information, that's a great place to start, but that's with little kids. Then as kids get older, you wanna really understand how they're being taught. Not necessarily obviously what they're being taught is important as well, but how is it to rote memorization? Is it to standardization or is it to ideas? Is it to exploration? If it is to standardization and memorization, then you really want your kids to understand that that they're memorizing this for a purpose But that doesn't mean that there's all that there is. So one of the ways that I think is great to do this is debates at the dinner table. You know, Mm -hmm. find out what they're learning, find out what they're certain of and be a bit contrary, you know, not be a jerk, but a little bit like, okay, well, you learn this. But what about that? And Mm -hmm. help them start to see that there are a lot of different ways to look at a a situation, um, a problem, uh, an answer and to help them start to see that nuance. Another great way is um, museums are just natural wonder environments. So anytime that you can bring a kid to a museum, um, that is just another way to add these layers of um, of understanding to them. But I think the first thing that you can start to do is to help them recognize that, um, that everything is nuanced, that everything has shades of gray and start helping them, grow that muscle by some little healthy debates and helping them see that there is more than just the position that they've taken
0: yeah you're you're helping them put the glasses on yeah Mm. and you know it reminds me i my daughter ann i have six children and my daughter ann i she took a birding class at school and and you know for these inexplicable reasons i love birds i mean i love birds and i love mushrooms (laughs) <laughs> but i love mushrooms too and i don't, i don't mean the kind you take to hallucinate i love like seeing mushrooms growing you know in mm. the, the wild variety of colors and things and so i used to go out with ann uh and take her bird watching and you know just down the back out the, out the door here and it was magical because you know she her wonder was like infectious for this mm. stuff and we we experienced that together and you know i and to this day she she still has that same sort of spirit of of inquiry and interest in things and i i do think it is possible to really generate that sort of mindset uh, as a parent and i love the idea of the table the dinner table too mm. and, and that yeah
1: and nature, again, you know, it's a, a shocking number of um, children are not in any you know, area with accessibility to green space. So if you are fortunate enough to have that, it's something like several million in America. Um, if you're fortunate enough to have that, then take advantage of it because there's so much there. There's so much richness in nature that can um, be that wonder bringer. And another way that is to, to help your children develop the language of what brings them wonder. Is it Mm -hmm. nature? Is it music? Is it, what is that thing? And then help them honor that as opposed to it, not just being a hobby or, Oh, they like this. No, that, that's fundamental to who they are as a human. That's their wonder bringer. And to then honor in a way that says, this is really, you know, give it that gravitas. This is important for you. It's not just something that you'd like to do and helping them recognize that language, I think could be helpful as well.
0: You know, I actually think it goes even deeper than that because, Uh, one of the challenges of the standardized uh, school process that you alluded to, you know, it's they're they're essentially factories, you know, yeah. if you want to just you know put it the way it is, uh, is you know the wonder can get stamped stomped out over time, and also I think individuals, young young adults, knowing who they are, and you know, as the authenticity of what their values, their priorities, and their interests are they can get lost in the in the in the process of the educational world and as a parent if you can help them discover their natural inclinations and their the the little internal things that just light them up those i really do believe in this is me my hobby horse now that that is the ticket for them finding a life of enjoyment and fulfillment mm. to leverage those and help them grow them as much as possible and i've had a major shift in my approach to this because before I was part of the standardization standardization world you, know, you go to college and then you do this and they do then you get your goddamn career and you figure it out and live happily ever after and I realized through a lot of personal experiences that was that was a false promise and uh and I've really shifted my parenting in that regard and it's been magical in terms of its uh impact on my relationship with my children mm-hmm. the, the degree of connection and um uh, and closeness and also to see them pursue Things that are you know outside the the realm, and it's brought so much joy to their lives. So I, I I think the wonder piece is part of the developmental process. Now this is I'm riffing now on this. No, but, I really but you're believe it's absolutely true.
1: right because it, when people um, feel a greater sense of wonder, then what they learn is embedded into the hippocampus is triggered. So it's embedded into long-term memory. So you're actually learning things as opposed to memorizing them. And memorization mm-hmm. stuff just falls right out of your brain. Right you know. Up not going to remember it um and it's certainly not going to have meaning to you so uh, the more that you can help them find meaning in the exploration and then as you say that starts to give them that meaning for um the way that they seek um the I guess Wonder in their in their lives in general and I think that mm-hmm. that's it's it's very important. And authenticity, again, authenticity and wonder um really go hand in hand. There's evidence about psychological safety and being your authentic self that people are more wonderful. Right. So I, I think, yeah, you're you're absolutely spot on there.
0: So then you use the term wonder bringer. And we've already talked about, well, first we'll tell us what wonder bringers are, and then. We've talked about a number of them, you know, meditation, uh, you know, to foster or maybe mm-hmm. that's not the right word here is meditation. One of them, that's a skill. So
1: meditation would be a wonder be, how to build a wonder mindset and a wonder, yeah, bringer wonder would mindset. be That thing that's sort of like, you know, what's your wonder appetite? So everybody yeah. has um, different sets of wonder bringers. Um, for me, I, I appreciate nature, but I'm not a big nature person. Um, for me, it's much more about cognitive wonder bringers. So lectures and, um, and learning and debating and also, uh, music. So music transports me. It's something that's fundamental to how I operate as a human, but to be able to even develop the language. And I use it. It's almost like that, that book love languages, you know, that you start Mm -hmm. to be able to use a language that says this is my wonder bringer and you can share that. And the beauty of that is that wonder shared is wonder multiplied. So we know Mm -hmm. that whenever you re-experience one of your wonder bringers by sharing it with someone, by writing it, it triggers a lot of those same um, mechanisms in your brain. I mean, it's fascinating even lower pro-inflammatory cytokines, lower, um, Lower uh, blood pressure and stress hormones. So these are not like you know just small uh, small changes that occur in your mind and body. Um, But those are it's identifying what those things are that give you a sense of wonder and pursuing them. But as you said, building the wonder mindset that is things like the slow thought activities. That is um, finding novelty. So again, our brain Mm -hmm. notices newness. Um, It's about being able to practice some of that sense of of, a presence um wonder walks and those do tend to be better when they're in nature um but again it's it's really a self-exploration of what is it that does it for you and to then give language to that so that it has more gravitas than just like you know oh well i enjoy being and no it's it is it is who you are it is part of your makeup
0: yeah, I guess you know the birds and the mushrooms are for me a, and knowledge. I mean, you're, I'm, co- my cognitive world. I, if I was left to my own devices, I would just sit and think and write, you know, all day long, you know. And, and
1: I loved writing just, this book, and the, my favorite part <laughs> was was just the research, 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 the research,
0: research. Yes, I, I loved
1: it, yeah. and at some point, yeah. my editor was like, "You have to stop."
0: <laughs> you got to stop. <laughs> you got to produce it. Yes, yes, yeah, that, <laughs> that would that would be me. Uh, well, you know, we're getting close to the end here. And I there's one area that I really wanted to, to get your uh, input on, and that is the role of wonder in resilience mm. uh, and hardship. And, mm. uh, you know, you have an astounding chapter in the book on resilience there. And, of course, resilience uh, is a topic near and dear to my heart, both personally and, and professionally. So uh, tell us about resilience and wonder and the value of it there.
1: Sure. So the primary mechanism, the way that... Um... Wonder helps us is that rather than um, seeing whatever negative experience or trauma that we have um, and seeing that as some sort of sense of finality or, um, or seeing it as something that is done to us, we have a sense of exploration of understanding, well, what is this thing? And in the process of sort of exploring it, it becomes less traumatizing. So there's evidence again, that shows that people who um, tend to experience PTSD um, as opposed to post-traumatic um, growth, they have smaller hippocampi. And the reason they believe that that is because you are you experiencing less curiosity about your own state. So that's mm-hmm. sort of the basis of it. Um, but what we find is also some of it is this embracing of um, duly valenced emotions. So there was a piece of research where when widows and widowers reflected on their deceased spouse and remembered both positive and negative attributes of their spouse, they were better able to deal with the death with grieving. So that seeing both the positive and the negative at all times, that becomes a um, a real muscle for us. And that's where we can see um, in resilience. Also, people who are more wonder prone um, uh, will experience what's known as the silver linings effect. So this is something perhaps in a, you know, a, a COVID is a good example of that or a hurricane. My family is from the south and we've experienced our fair share mm-hmm. of hurricanes. And you think you can look at it one way and say it's just pure disaster, but there is wonder there, partly because you feel like you're very small in the face of this thing you can't control, but also then you start to see some of the best of humanity in response to that and that's sort of that silver lining, if you can see that bit of positive, that glimmer, which sometimes we want to kill in ourselves, we feel guilty for it. We think I should yes, wear a yes, hair yes, shirt. Yes, you know, I yes. should wear a hair shirt and be really, really depressed about this. Yeah. The two can exist at the same time, and so you can be just gutted and and so bereaved and and lost about a situation but at the same time if you have that sense of exploration and you're able to see those glimmers of awe that buoys you um and I love you know the story of uh, of the gentleman's uh Stephen Callahan who is adrift mm-hmm. for something like 80 days and and that's a book by about, the same
0: name yeah yeah
1: oh there you yeah. and he's yeah. yeah and he was his story talks about how he is in the absolute depths of horror and yet he can't not be amazed at the beauty that he's in and he felt that that was really Um, critical to his survival was holding on to that sense of, of wonder. And sometimes in a very sort of perverse way, he even misses it because he said there was such sparkling clarity of wonder when you're in that environment. So it's recognizing that everywhere there is wonder there. And that's the key of resilience is recognizing that in the heart of the darkness that you're experiencing, there is some element that is positive that you can learn from it, that you can grow from it, and that is sort of the how it how it helps us from a, a psychological point of view.
0: It's interesting. It reminds me in the world of Buddhism, you know, this idea of impermanence uh, mm. being such a foundational aspect of the of the journey, mm. and by that, in your bones, fully in bones, cognition, whatever, mm. fully embracing and accepting the impermanent nature of everything our bodies Mm. our lives the world at large and I just had an image of lying in that boat out in the ocean like he was and that certainly must still instill a deep sense of impermanence and Mm. I just wondered if there's some if that's even sort of a gateway into the land of wonder to some extent
1: Absolutely. And you think of that, you think of the Zen precept of uh, the, of the beginner's um, uh, Beginner's mind. Yeah. The beginner's mind. Um, Rainer Maria Rilke talked about always be Mm -hmm. beginning. So if things are impermanent, then they're in a constant state of, uh, of growth, of being born and of dying. And it's and it's yeah, a, yeah. a constant cycle. So if you choose to, then you can always be, you're being reborn all the time through new eyes. So yeah, I think yeah. absolutely that sense of impermanence, that sense of, um, of seeing newness, even where you think perhaps there is nothing new to be seen, that is one of the most powerful techniques that you can use to create a, a wonder mindset.
0: Yeah, yeah, great. Well, Monica, that's uh, that's the end of the interview from my perspective on the questions. But is there anything else that I haven't covered that you think you just got to tell our audience about wonder anything that's I I didn't hit here or did we do a reasonable job of covering? I,
1: I think you did an excellent job. I think the only thing that I want people to know is that the world that they believe they're moving through, that there is more. And mm-hmm. I describe it like a, a a sound through the wall, you know, it's there, you just have to be willing to find it. And um, I believe that if we can do that, we will become more tolerant people and we will build a more tolerant world. And so and that's really my goal. Yeah,
0: I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you for your work. Uh, thank you for the splendid book. And thank you so much for taking the time out of your Day and week to spend it with us here on the Resilient Surgeon. I can't. Thank you you for your time and
1: including me. I really appreciate it, Michael. Have a good one. Yeah,
0: you too. Bye-bye. This has been the Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, be your best self. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.